Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. For something that seems so simple, the act of adorning one's face with makeup can be incredibly fraught. A smudge of lip color or a flick of eyeliner can mean getting a promotion, getting home safely, and being taken seriously. Or not. As journalist Ray Knudsen writes in her new book, All Made Up, The Power and Pitfalls of Beauty Culture from Cleopatra to Kim Kardashian, makeup has, for better or worse, shaped cultural narratives and standards of beauty for centuries. Red lipstick is patriotic, and it's an act of protest, and it's a sign of sex appeal, all depending on when you live and who and where you are. Ray Knudsen joins us to talk about the choices we make when we wear makeup and whether those choices are ever entirely ours. Thanks for talking to me, Ray. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So what drew you to writing a whole book on makeup and the particular angle that you chose? I have always been interested in appearance and having fun with appearance. I've changed my hair a million times. I'm always interested in fashion. And I kind of noticed that fashion and clothing, I think it's being taken a lot more seriously in research these days. And there's a lot more articles about what it means and a lot more historical research. And I didn't see that much about makeup and what makeup meant in the same way as clothing. But I knew that it had implications because it affects your appearance, just like clothing does or just like your hair does. And so I wanted to kind of look at what was there and try to fill in that gap a little bit. I've also always been interested in the way things are feminized and how that looks different, even though a lot of things that are more seen as more masculine or more feminine may come from the same things. And so like I did a story on camouflage paint that the military uses or that soldiers use. And the woman who makes camouflage paint for the United States started as a makeup artist and she started a makeup company and it's it's makeup it's it's a pigment that you put on your face but when men do it in war it's seen as this uber masculine brave thing and then when women wear makeup to work it's totally disregarded but it's the same material so i wanted to see what else was behind that and why people thought certain ways about it yeah, I love that example of the camouflage makeup, especially because in a lot of ways, people wear makeup to blend in mm-hmm. and camouflage is is that you're blending in <laughs> with your environment, except your environment in this case is like plants and trees rather totally. than like other humans. Yeah. And I think that that's a life and death situation for a lot of people, but also women can tell you that walking on the street is often a life and death situation and you need to blend in and you need to be careful and you need to if you wear what people view as the wrong thing that can literally put your life in danger for certain people and so you just have to be aware of that I think I don't think it's that different to say you need makeup to blend in and then it could come down to survival Right. Well, and on the subject of it being a life or death situation um, or makeup being unimportant, you have a really compelling counterexample to that point in the book of Sibella Nitti, this Italian immigrant in the 1920s, who was the first woman sentenced to hang in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And makeup almost literally saved her life. Yeah, she was an immigrant woman who was accused of murdering her husband 
And a lot of the evidence around her case was circumstantial. That body that they found, they didn't even prove that it was her husband. It's very possible her husband just took money from the family and ran away. And she didn't speak English. She was Italian. And she wasn't fitting in with the norms of the time when it came to appearance. She had long hair. She was very poor. She didn't have any makeup. She didn't have clothes that were trendy. And so when she came to trial, it was very easy for people to see her as this other, as this evil thing. And there was racism at work and there was sexism at work. And so the judge and jury and reporters that covered her trial just saw her as guilty immediately because they didn't see her as beautiful. They didn't see her as innocent. They didn't see her as a proper woman. And when she got help from actually a woman lawyer in Chicago who helped her kind of revamp her case and make over herself. So they helped her get new clothing. They helped her dye her hair. They showed her how to use makeup to fit in with the trends of the time. And her transformation made other people see her as a woman, as a proper woman who could be innocent, who maybe got swept away in this thing and didn't really murder anyone after all. And so when she had this transformation, people at her trial saw her completely differently. She got a better lawyer. She presented herself differently. And her case ended up just going away, ended up being dropped. It's so amazing that a makeover could do all that. But I think it really says so much about how we see people. And you have a really interesting line towards the beginning of the book about how a person's opinion on makeup is something of a litmus test for their opinion on other aspects of society. What do you mean by that? So I think that what people think about makeup has a lot more to do with themselves than the person actually wearing makeup. And so a lot of people will bring preconceived notions, they'll bring stereotypes, they'll bring ideas about homosexuality to their views on makeup. So if someone's looking at a man wearing makeup, a lot of people will assume, oh, that person's gay or, oh, they're, you know, not confident in their gender identity or, oh, this, this, and this. And that may not have anything to do with why this person is actually wearing makeup. They could be wearing makeup for totally different reasons that have nothing to do with other people's preconceived notions. So I think that a lot of people just bring a lot of baggage around makeup to their ideas about why people are wearing it, but why people wear it may have nothing to do with what you think about them. So what are some of the more unusual ways that people have used makeup that you looked at in this book? Camo makeup is one really good example, but you know, if I'm looking at someone and I'm assuming the wrong thing, what's one of the more interesting cases you found? Well, that's a really good question. So there was a time around World War II that I thought was really interesting where lipstick and makeup became different things for different women in the United States. So if a white woman wore red lipstick, they were often seen as patriotic and supporting the country and going to work to support the war effort. But then if a Latina woman wore red lipstick, they were seen as over-sexualized. They were seen as criminal, maybe. And there was an incident around... Pachuco women who had very specific makeup trends of dark lipstick, like pompadour hair, and they had different clothing that they all wore. And they were seen as these over-sexualized criminal women. And they often were implicated in crimes or police, you know, thought they were too fast or too criminal or hanging out with the wrong people. 
but it's the same makeup. It's the same lipstick. It may just be a slightly different color. And women, white women were lauded and seen as patriotic. And these Latina women were seen as deviant. I think World War II is a really interesting inflection point in the U.S. Um, for women in the workplace and outside of the workplace, as you write about it. it, comes up like in several of the different chapters that you have. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what changed. Sure. So around that time, especially around World War II, women were changing roles. A lot of women left the household to go to work to fill in for men in factories. A lot of women were on their own for the first time. Their men were overseas, maybe at war. And so roles were changing around the country. And I think a lot of people got afraid that because women were in charge of their households, because they were in the workplace more often, that they were losing femininity, that they were taking on a too masculine of role. And so makeup became a way to kind of emphasize their femininity while they could still work. In factories, you couldn't have long hair, you couldn't have dresses, you couldn't have loose clothing because it was dangerous. You could get caught up in the machinery. And makeup was a very safe way to still emphasize your femininity. It was still a way you could say, look, I'm a woman. I paid attention to my appearance. Like, don't worry, I'm not too masculine, even though I'm doing this job. And so I think it became a real touchstone for the country and a way to keep women in feminine roles or appearing feminine, even though they were taking on new roles in the country. And that is different for white women and people of color were viewed differently wearing this makeup, like I said. And so it was still a way to kind of reinforce racial hierarchies, sexism and feminine roles still. And that all kind of relied on makeup to do that at that time. Right. I mean, it's not like all of that has gone away necessarily. Like, if you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, wearing red lipstick and hoops in defiance, yeah. I think, of what Sonia Sotomayor had told her to do, which was don't do that. Yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of things are the same, like you said. And I think even before the 50s in the U.S., these attitudes kind of pop up and recede and go back and forth. And yeah, women of color still have a harder time being taken seriously when they're wearing bright colors or when they're wearing red lipstick, for instance. And it's a lot harder for people who are not in the dominant culture to be taken seriously when they're wearing makeup or to not be, you know, looked down on or seen as frivolous or, or overly sexualized or deviant in some way. And so, yeah, I think those attitudes are still here and still very prevalent. And a lot of that hasn't changed from the 50s. I do think that more styles of makeup have kind of opened up. But again, that's mostly for white women who are already accepted in the dominant culture. It is not always safe and accepted for people to wear makeup who don't fit into that ideal. I think what's also interesting is that there are a lot of styles of makeup today that actually came from subcultures in a way. There is some really interesting writing about contouring, for example, coming out of the drag community. Yeah, I think contouring is super interesting because, like you said, it came from the subculture and and then became much more dominant. And Kim Kardashian had a huge hand in that. So she kind of built this empire on contouring. She's got makeup and she sells it and she's, she's on top of the trend. But it didn't come from her. It came from theater and drag and other people outside of the dominant culture. And I think that that happens a lot with makeup, like you said, and exaggerated like cat eyeliner 
or even eyebrows, like that eyebrow grooming and stuff that is so common right now doesn't really start out in the dominant culture. It's just that once it makes its way in, white women at the top kind of reset the rules and put themselves at the top of the hierarchy again and kind of shift things around. To Korean skincare, for example, that is another thing that has caught on in the U.S. recently and came from Korea and women of color and white women have kind of latched on to this glass skin and the skincare and kind of reset the hierarchy again where clear skin smooth skin is like the tip top of what you want to be you don't even you don't want to have contouring you don't want to have a lot of makeup on you just want glass like skin it is really funny how even though the trend seems new or different, like we haven't Mm -hmm. had a Korean skincare trend in the U.S. before. But in a lot of ways, it's an echo of what we've seen in the past. Like you you looked not just at contemporary society and how we look at makeup, but like a pretty big chunk of history and how makeup was used in ancient Mm -hmm. Greek culture or in Egypt, for example, or Mm -hmm. in ancient China. And you know, some patterns emerge. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Like, what do you see in this whole scope? Things kind of cycle in and out. And who can participate in makeup cycles in and out, whether it's just women, whether men can participate and be accepted, whether people of any gender can participate and be accepted. In ancient Egypt, it looked like all genders wore makeup. And there's evidence that, you know, men and women wore makeup and that they had very elaborate eye makeup. And then that went in and out of fashion, I guess, depending on the culture, depending on the time period. In England, even men wore powder for a long time, and then that went out of fashion again, and it was only women. And now in culture today, makeup is very heavily associated with women. But again, in Asia right now, a lot of men are wearing makeup, and that's kind of opening more up again. So these things cycle in and out and back and forth about who can participate, who's accepted, is a heavy makeup a good look or is it not cycles in and out and back and forth. None of these stereotypes are new. None of these arguments are new. It's all been there before. Yeah, I thought that came out in a really interesting way, talking about how women in power especially use makeup. So two examples that you cite are Empress Wu and then Queen Elizabeth. And their use of makeup was framed very differently when they were in power. (laughs) Versus Mm -hmm. when they were out of power. Yeah, so Empress Wu um, was the only woman emperor in ancient China. She ruled under her own name. She did not rule behind her husband or her son. She took power and started her own dynasty. And she was very beautiful and alluring. I think she just, like, drew people to her. And that was in part because of the makeup she used. And the makeup that she used indicated that she had status. She used, you know, elaborate makeup and the higher her rank went in the palace, you know, the more elaborate her look could be because it indicated wealth and it indicated status. And that was very accepted in that time in ancient China. People used clothing to indicate their government rank. So people knew that appearance could indicate your social status. That was very accepted at that time. And she used makeup to kind of create a persona that got her close to power, that got her close to the emperor. She became empress, and then she became more involved in the government, and then eventually she took power for herself. And as she did that, she created an image that kind of helped her break out of a feminine role that was more, you know, domestic, and then she took power for herself. But after she lost power 
even actually during her reign, I believe, people kind of painted her as manipulative because she was a social climber and she used makeup to help her indicate her social status, right? So that became associated with this like devious woman. And after she lost power, she was portrayed as vain, arrogant, silly, all the things you see today of the reasons why people shouldn't wear makeup, right? Like it's tricking people. It's silly to pay too much attention to your appearance. You're not a serious person. She saw that during and after her reign. And Queen Elizabeth was similar. She had to build an image that portrayed her as this beautiful virgin queen, literally, because she never married. And so she had to look like she was pristine and beautiful and young and strong because she was a sovereign who was ruling by herself. And then after she lost power, after she died, her detractors painted her like a clown, like someone wearing too much makeup and that she held on to her youth way past her prime and she used makeup to do that and that she was just ridiculous for trying to portray herself in that way. But really, male sovereigns all the time need to look strong and need to look young because the government depends on them. And so it's important to look like you're young and healthy so that people don't think you're going to die imminently and the government could fall apart. So it was really very important to her to do that. And then after she was gone, it was very easy for people to twist that into something that made these women look ridiculous. What's fascinating about those two instances is we do have a pretty good record, I guess, of their use of wearing makeup because they were were known for it. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily always true about something like makeup. Mm -hmm. You know, what was it like to research the book and try to figure out how this ephemeral substance was used, what it meant socially, and like what was and wasn't true? It was really hard. (laughs) A lot of what women do in their day-to-day lives is not kept for posterity. Their papers are not saved. What they tell each other is not always written down. And it's just, yeah, it was really hard. And so a lot of what you look at is kind of idealized beauty to see what people valued. And that could come across in paintings and literature and poems and plays and things like that. For Empress Wu, for example, you had records that the government left of their histories, but those records were not always accurate because they were written by the victor and they could change the story a little bit. And so you kind of had to dissect what people said and understand why they were saying it and look at other sources to kind of double check what was real and what people valued and what people thought was beautiful. I believe that there was a record of quartz or gallons of eye pigment delivered to the emperor's palace in ancient China. And so that was used for people at the time. They shaved off their eyebrows and painted, you know, eyebrows onto their face. And there's a record of this pigment being delivered. And so that is a pretty good indication that that was valued and that that's what people did and that a lot of women at the time were interested in doing that. And so you just kind of have to take different clues and assess what you think is real and what makes sense and and what people want to look at. And there was a lot of things I found that weren't true and a lot of things that when I looked at the source, I couldn't find one. And a lot of things are repeated in beauty books or on the internet, and I just could not find evidence for them being real. Like what? So one of my favorite examples is that I read all over the place that in ancient China, women wore nail polish to indicate their status. And like I said, people did use the color of clothing, like the color of robes for men could indicate their status in the government or the military. 
But that wasn't the same for women. Women were not bound by those rules. They did not get punished in the same way if they didn't wear those collars. They didn't have like a uniform in the same way. Also, I could find no evidence of nail polish at all. <laughs> that was just not a thing I could find. I was emailing scholars of ancient China and they said they had never seen anything like that. I don't know why it got repeated in that way. And it's like a game of telephone where it just goes on and on and on. And you just see it over and over again. But I couldn't find evidence for that. Another one is that suffragettes in the U.S. and in the U.K. in the early 1900s, I read in books, in the Internet, in articles everywhere that they wore red lipstick to kind of show that they were like independent and like, sticking it to the man as they were trying to get their voting rights. And that just wasn't true at the time. It was more respectable for women in the early 1900s to not wear makeup and to have a bare face. And these women were trying to be seen as respectable. They were trying to say, like, look, we can still be women. We can still be respectable women, even if we have the right to vote. So for them, they didn't wear makeup. And so that was repeated a lot also in books and in articles. And I think even books said that, like, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wore red lipstick in a march in 1913, but she died in 1902. And these things just get repeated over and over again and have like a modern sensibility added to them when that wasn't really the case in history and what actually happened was a lot more interesting and a lot more revealing of what people thought and believed at the time that red lipstick again man it crops up over and over again it means something different every time yes <laughs> i know it does and it's so funny especially that instance because like you can google like elizabeth Cady Stanton red lipstick and it comes up everywhere and it it doesn't mean the same thing in 1913 as it does in 1950 as it does in 2010. It means something different every time. Yeah. Do you think makeup is being taken more seriously today than it was in the past? I think so in that more people can participate in it and talk about it. But I also think there's still the same struggle to get people in power to believe it matters. Because the people that know it matters are the people who don't have power, right? Who have to be more careful about how they present themselves in the world, who know more deeply how they are treated if they don't fit in. And so I think to get people in power to take that seriously, I don't, I don't know what that's going to take. You know, maybe just time until it gets more widely accepted and more talked about. But, and I think we're maybe on our way there with social media and with, you know, more people having voices in the makeup world today. But I just think with cycles going in and out of history, it's hard to say that that's here for sure. Even if people do start taking it seriously, that could, you know, cycle back out in the next 10, 20 years and be something silly and frivolous again. We have links in the show notes to Ray Knudsen's new book, All Made Up, The Power and Pitfalls of Beauty Culture, from Cleopatra to Kim Kardashian as well as a few essays about makeup in all its forms, whether that's camo, the 1920s, Elizabeth Taylor's blue eyeshadow, or contouring. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>